Pentecost. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning, and our opening read is going to be from verses 9 through 14, uh, and we're going to uh, dig into those verses uh, in, later on in our message today. I would like you to put a bookmark uh, on both sides of 1 Corinthians, one in Romans, one in Galatians. There's some important texts that we're going to be turning to, uh, and since they're close by, I thought we could get to them pretty easily. Uh, so I wanted to get those in front of our eyes. We'll have some stuff on the screen to follow along with as well, but uh, there's some key scriptures that I think uh, are going to be important uh, um, complements to this text in Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse number 9 through 14, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church uh, about, uh, about the work that they are doing as Christians, as a church, as believers, uh, and he invites them to look forward He invites them to look into the possibly distant future or maybe even the near future. Who knows? He invites them to look forward and he kind of paints a picture for them. And and I think this is one of the most brilliant, awesome uh, pictures that the Bible gives us uh, about a day that we all know is coming, a day that we all know is in all of our futures, but we often wonder, what's it going to be like and, and really what's the day going to be all about, especially for, for believers. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verse number 9, we'll, we'll jump in. For we are God's fellow workers. We are laborers together with God. You are God's field. You are God's building. So he's empowering us and saying that you're the thing that God is up to in the world. If you wonder, hey, what's God doing in the world today? Uh, how is God made known in the world today? In, in times past, he was made known through prophets. He was made known through Jesus. He was made known, made known through apostles. If you want to know what God's up to now, if you want to know what God is up to in the age that we live in, then look at the church. You and I, we uh, are the means that God is making himself known through the world. And, and, and God is active in and around and through the church and through believers. So you, that's you, including all of us today. You are the field that God is working in. You are the building that God is uh, raising up and putting together and working in. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. And another builds on that foundation. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. So Paul had planted this church. Paul had raised up these believers from, from, from they were formerly pagans. They were in other religions. They were just not even uh, associated with, with, with God or the, the, the faith of, of Israel or, or, or the Christian faith at all. So Paul says, hey, I have helped lay the foundation. Uh, and now it's up to you. It's up to you as to how you build on that foundation. He says there's no other foundation uh, can be laid. No, one, no other foundation can be laid other than, than Christ. Verse 11, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we've laid the foundation that we all are building upon what Christ has done. More on that later. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw... Notice there's a big difference in some of those. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become clear or will be made known or manifest. For the day will declare it, that's judgment day. Most of your Bibles probably have that day capitalized because that is referring to a specific day in the future. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is, as what category it goes in, the gold, silver, precious stones, the wood, hay, 
or straw, and I think we know what fire does to some of those things. Maybe we don't know what it does to all of those, but we'll talk more about that. To test each one's work of what sort it is, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will or she will receive a reward. A little over 50 years ago, John Lennon, famous Beatle, but also did some some uh, single uh, you know work on his own. Uh, John Lennon uh, put on put out a song called "Imagine." Uh, Lennon, uh, among his rock star contemporaries, they all wrote and they all sang in an era when everybody was questioning the prevailing and dominant systems of the world, and, and much they did so with much skepticism and self-importance. And, and in the song that you're probably very familiar with, or maybe you, you even like, and, and, and in the song, uh, Lennon writes, "Imagine there's no heaven." It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Now, the message of the song is that if we all just live for the moment, then perhaps the world would be a better place. Blaming religion on holding people back from truly living. Now, Lennon claimed the song was imagining a world of peace and unity, uh, citing that religion often causes chaos and disruption. And, of course, plenty of people uh, do bad things in the name of religion, and plenty of uh, people uh, you know, shirk their accountability in the name of religion. But, but, but to suppose the idea of an afterlife um, uh, being the, one of the reasons why uh, people don't live like they should or enjoy life like they could, I think that's a little far-fetched. I think we could agree on that. So blaming the idea of an afterlife or people living for an afterlife Afterlife, or looking forward to an afterlife, blaming that as the reason why the world isn't as it should be is a little bit of a stretch. Now, I'm not picking on you if you like Lennon or the Beatles. I personally listen to Eleanor Rigby every night before I go to bed. Um, and then I, one of my favorite Christmas songs is Happy Christmas. Um, one of those statements is a lie. Uh, I, 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 I'll, let you, I'll let you guess. But uh, sometimes I feel like Father McKenzie, so maybe that's a hint. Um, but anyways, if you, if you don't know in Fall Mountain, then, uh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, one of the, anyways, the song Imagine, the song Imagine is the sentiment, uh, and the sentiment behind it summarizes a lot of people's out, uh, outlook on life and, and takes on the afterlife. Even believers even professing Christians, um, I think often we fall into the camp of, well, you know, why don't we just live for today and, and not worry about what comes next? And, and for a lot of people, a lot of Christians, it's like we view faith as kind of an insurance policy. Uh, we have it because someone told us we better get it. We keep the paperwork somewhere in the glove box of our car or in a drawer in the kitchen. Uh, but, we, you know, we don't really think about it that often. It, it, someone told us that we should have it, so we got it, and we hope we never really have to use it. In a lot of ways, it, it, you know, faith for us is like a life insurance or an afterlife insurance policy. We only see it as effective when life is over. You know, I got to tell you, if this is how Christianity has been sold to you, if this is how Christianity has been presented to you, I promise you it's better than that. And I promise you it's also more important than that. Uh, every generation has voices like Lennon's that tries to convince us or tries to talk us out of prioritizing our faith, tries to tell us that, hey, you know, uh, there's a better version of life out there that your faith is going to get in the way of, uh, you know. And, and for instance, 10 years ago, uh, around 10 years ago, plastered all over social media and bumper stickers uh, was 
chose this thankfully short-lived motto. Uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with Imagine, you probably remember the You Only Live Once uh, uh, campaign, um, you know, back when everybody was posting the Keep Calm and Carry On memes, you know, very simpler times on social media. People didn't seem to argue as much back then. Uh, but thankfully, um, that YOLO and, and those things are all behind us, uh, but but. You know, not to be the preacher that pushes his glasses up and says, actually, um, you know, actually, we, we, we actually live forever. And, and you know that. And that's why that motto had obvious issues. But I think a lot of us, I, I think a lot of us, most of us, we, we still live each day and every day with w- not thinking about eternity. Uh, we don't think about how today is going to have some kind of an impact on tomorrow, on forever. And while I can't speak to mindsets and mentalities of those who aren't Christians or members of other faith, for Christians, I think, it can, I can, I think the statement can be made, I, I think it's undeniably true that living with eternity on your mind is actually a tremendous motivator. Specifically, living with the understanding and expectation that there is a judgment day coming. A day when we will be held accountable and judged for how we lived out our lives. For Christians, we can absolutely improve, that, th- this mindset can absolutely improve our lives and be a positive influence on our lives every single day. In the same way the prospect of getting paid and being promoted drives you at work, or in the same way that the end of the semester or the degree at the end of your college years drives you to work hard and look forward, uh, I think it can be said without question, the human experience, both our individual lives and our collective shared lives, the human experience is strengthened and bettered when we keep Judgment Day on our radars, when we keep Judgment Day on the horizons. You know, if you've ever used an app to track your exercising or monitor your diet, you know that you can toggle on or off certain metrics, and that's why most of us turn them off after a while, because they keep reminding us to step, to take more steps and to stand up longer, or to get up and walk around if you've been sitting too long, uh, or maybe, you know, if, if you monitor your, your calories, when you know you've went over your calories, you just quit putting them in because you don't want to be reminded, hey, you probably shouldn't eat anymore, uh, even though you're probably going to, right? We've all been, used those apps before and used those, those, those devices, and and those, those um, systems that we are motivated to stay in step with them if we allow them to, uh, to, 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 to kind of check up on us and, and, and to be a guide. Uh, something that the kids will understand, you know, in, in video games, there's, there's often quests that you, you can take or missions that you can take that you might not immediately need to worry about but are more long-term in the future things, uh, but you can keep them toggled on uh, and they will remind you, hey, you should maybe keep this in mind. You should maybe work on this thing because the end game is looming on the horizon. And, and that's kind of what being mindful of Judgment Day is like. It It steers you, it directs you, it guides you. And studies have shown, studies have shown that you and I, that people of all generations, of all ages, people are in a better headspace when we are productive. That we're better, we do better, we live better, we're happier, we're more focused, we're just more better humans when we are productive, when we have ambition and passion for something and are working towards something. All these things prevent us from becoming idle and apathetic about our lives and and where they're headed. So, in the same way, keeping eternity on our minds, knowing that Judgment Day is a certainty one day, it's actually a good thing. It's actually healthy 
for our minds. Now, we began a series last week called Judgment Day, if you're not, if you haven't called on by now. Judgment Day, uh, we, we addressed the issue, we addressed the issue that sometimes Judgment Day can be a bit anxiety-inducing. When you hear the word Judgment Day, you kind of get a little nervous. You kind of feel something in your stomach that you maybe you don't want to feel. Uh, you get a little worried, but we decided that we can't ignore it. As, as anxious as it may make us feel, as unsettling as it may be on the premise, uh, we decided that Judgment Day is, is something that we can't ignore, and that really the whole idea behind Judgment Day is very simple. It's preparation. It's preparing for eternity. Now, a few things that we concluded last week that amplify the importance of Judgment Day in preparation is that one day this life will end. One day our lives will end, and we will spend forever somewhere. Either time will run out on us or we will run out of time. One of the two are bound to happen. And it begs the question, when time runs out, when we run out of time, where will we be? And what will it be like? So it sort of goes without saying. Today is about preparation for tomorrow, for life eternal. Now is all about preparation for what's next. And thankfully, Jesus had a ton to say on this subject. Probably 80% of every sermon Jesus preached was always calling to mind Judgment Day or our eternal lives. And most importantly, if you didn't know this about Jesus, when he talked about eternity, when he talked about Judgment Day, he offers us tons of hope and reassurance when it comes to this subject. Because when Jesus introduced the topic of Judgment Day, he often used the phrase, the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom's doors are opening soon. But when he did so, he always framed it with something good, something that you should look forward to. Mark introduces us to Jesus like this. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, and gospel is just a fancy Bible word for good news. It's just a, it's a combination word. In the Greek, it literally is two words, good news. Not bad news, not news that worries you or upsets you or makes you nervous. This is good news. So you can trust Jesus on this, that what he's got to offer you and what he's got to teach you is good for you, and it's going to make you feel good in the long run. It's good news. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, as in, hey, it's going to take some changing. It's going to take some uh, transforming your life, no doubt. But when you put your faith in what I'm going to offer you, it is good news for you. It is good for you. So how on earth could the subject, which often has brought us fear and anxiety, how can that all of a sudden evoke good news? How can that make us feel good? Well, Jesus responds to the questions that people, as people doubted. He, he responded, just follow me. Just follow me. Trust me. I'll show you why you can look forward to the day of judgment. And if you know where Jesus' ministry took him, it took him to a Roman cross where he bled out and was broken, where he gave up his life. And, and don't take my word for it. Don't take a preacher's word for it. Take Jesus himself, what his words are about why he came and why he had to die. He says, I am the good shepherd. You know who I am at my very core. I'm a good shepherd. And good shepherds go finding, when, go finding their lost sheep. Good shepherd go looking for their sheep when they get lost. So I'm a good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. That's his way of saying, I'm trustworthy. 
I'm not going to blow smoke. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to tell you something that, that is not important to you or that you can't bank on or bet on. I know you and you can know me, that we can trust each other. And I am the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. And that means you. So here's, here's the unfiltered truth about us and God. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're all lost sheep. We're all fallen, born into a fallen world with a fallen nature. We didn't ask for it. You say, well, that's not fair. There's a lot of things that are not fair about the world. The fall made a lot of things messy. But as far as what matters to us, here's what we know. God proved himself trustworthy on the matter because he sent Jesus to do something that we should have had to do and that we should have had to pay for ourselves. He sent Jesus to die for our sins. God demonstrated his love when Jesus died on the cross to guarantee you and me that nothing stands in between us and God anymore. You can take that. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, still sinning and still completely not, not thinking about God, if you want to know how, how, how you can trust someone, here's someone that sent someone to die for you. I think we can trust him, don't you? That God showed his love for you that while you were still sinning and careless about God as you could be, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, we have now been saved from wrath. So therefore, we don't have to fear judgment day. We can look forward to it. Jesus was judged for us, and now we get to live through him and for him. So imagine a world, not where we pretend like there isn't a heaven or a hell, not where we pretend like this life is all there is, Imagine a world where we all live under the peace from God and in his power. Imagine a world where we're all preparing for eternity and that influences who we are and everything that we do. Imagine what that world could look like. We can live in confidence that judgment day isn't a day to be feared, but a day that we can look forward to because we now live in the life and power of Christ. Therefore, our lives have taken on a new meaning. We have new opportunities, and we realize our actions carry and have a lot more weight attached to them. Will we still be judged for what we do in this life? Absolutely. If we haven't already heard enough, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body, whether good or evil. Hebrews gives us this message of hope, though. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. Here's why for Christians, Judgment Day should be something we look forward to. Here's why as a Christian, you don't have to be afraid of judgment. You don't have to be afraid of dying. Afraid of what comes next when life is over, when time runs out, when you run out of time. Because when Christ returns and when you step into eternity, He is not going to deal with sin. He's already saved you from that. It's something different. He's not returning to deal with sin to those that he saved, but we eagerly wait for him because we know that judgment day means something different, something better for us. 
In fact, for Christians, Judgment Day can be summed up with the word that our opening text ends with. Reward or rewards. 1 Corinthians 3 confirms that Jesus in His provision must be the foundation of our lives. That is, we are righteous and able to live for God because of Him. So before uh, this turns into a competition or a race, let me just start by making this very clear. Before we start judging each other or comparing ourselves to each other, sizing up who's going to get more rewards or who's living the most reward-worthy life, just to put that to bed, there are plenty of rewards to go around. We are not competing with each other. We're not racing each other. We have the same opportunity and the same grace empowering us all. Look at verses 10 and 11. And, and let's, I want you to notice the way Paul starts this passage off. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another one builds on it. So Paul says, God, God's grace called me into a life of ministry. And I've given my life over to serving Him and helping to build up His church. God's grace made a change in my life and I've given my life to Him. And he says to you and he says to me in verse 11, let each one or each one of you take heed on how you build on it. So let's, let's connect some dots here. If God's grace was given to Paul for the life that he was called to live, I think it's safe to say that God's grace has been given to you and me to enable us to live the life that we've been called to live. That's not a stretch at all, is it? Paul says, according to God's grace, the grace of God gave me the strength I needed and the vision I needed and the power I needed to live a life that honored Him. Likewise, you've been given God's grace to build on the foundation that has been laid. I think one of the, most, one of the greatest underestimations that Christians make is with regard to God's grace. We sing about God's grace. We talk about God's grace in very abstract ways. We, 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 we think of grace as kind of like a feeling from God. Well, God feels good toward us, that God's gracious towards us. But I want to make it very clear that grace is not just sentiment. It's more than just an emotion from God. It's more than just a sentiment from God. Grace is God's power over us and within us. So keep your Bibles, uh, keep a bookmark in 1 Corinthians, but go back with me to Romans, Romans 5. I want to look at about three verses in Romans 5 that I think you should highlight. I think you should even commit to memory if you uh, are, are so daring. Uh, Romans 5, the very last verse, and we'll look at a few in chapter 6. If, you, if you've never thought about God's grace as the power from God, the, these verses in the, the, these two chapters, if you want to read them on your own, are really all about how God's grace is a power in our lives. And he, listen to how Romans 5, 20 and 21 introduce us to grace and what the contrast is what the comparison is from grace to something else. You'll pick up on it. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, that our sin might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So we've all got sin in our hearts, sin in our life. Sin is this entity, it's this nature that makes us do the wrong stuff. But grace is God's nature. You want to guess what it does? It makes us do the right stuff. 
So as sin is dragging us down, grace is raising us up. And verse 21 puts it perfectly. So as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what he's saying. Sin reigns in your life, as in it rules your life. Sin controls us. It makes us do things that we regret afterwards. Sin reigns or sits on the throne of our heart. But we become a Christian, grace says, sin off the throne. I'm in charge now. The grace of God rules our lives. And if sin made us do the wrong things, grace is going to make us do the right things. As it says on the screen, grace is even more effective at improving our lives than sin is at ruining them. Does that make sense? Sin is really good at ruining lives, don't you know? Don't you think? We agree. Sin is the reason why we do things that we regret later. So that, or therefore, if sin is a master at ruining us, grace is even more effective at improving at changing us. Now, maybe you've never thought about grace like that. But if you, th- if you want to think about grace in the biblical way, this is it. But may it be clear, grace is unearned. Grace is holy from God. So that means when we have, we have to lean on Jesus daily, rely on Him. So again, why is keeping Judgment Day on the radar a good thing? Because it encourages us and compels us to rely on God's grace more and more. We will give an account for what we did with God's grace. Down in verse number 11 of chapter 6, listen to how Paul sets this up for us. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've got to make a decision every day. We're saved. Sin, our nature is still fallen. Our nature is still sinful, but we've got something better in our hearts, something better in our spirit, raising us to life. It's the grace of God. So we have to make a decision day after day. I am dead to sin, alive to God. What's the proof? God's grace has been given to us through Jesus. How do you know that? Because he died for us. And if you trust that Jesus died for you and you've put your faith in him as your savior, just as sin is in our flesh, the grace of God is in our heart, in our spirits, making us brand new. And I promise you, grace is greater than your sin. Down in verse 14, he says, Sin shall no longer have dominion. Sin shall no longer be your master. For you're not under that law anymore. You're not under those rules anymore. You are under grace. That's as practical as I can explain it to you. So imagine, imagine this. You can turn back to Corinthians now. Imagine you woke up tomorrow and your bank account was loaded, loaded, with all the money in the world. Your imagination could run wild with all that you could do with that money, right? I mean, even just a sizable increase. I mean, just add a zero to the end of it, right? That would be good for a lot of us, right? Add a couple of zeros, we're we're set for life. Imagine what you would do with all that money. In the same way, when, when, when our lives are filled with God's grace, the potential for us and the opportunity in front of us is completely open season, that we can do so much that we've never been able to do. Be more than we've ever been able to be. So let's take this a step farther. 
We know that salvation fills us with grace and that we must live in that grace's power in order to be rewarded on Judgment Day. We've established that. What does that kind of life look like? What does grace do with our lives? Well, the short answer is this. Grace makes us like Jesus. Does it make us Jesus? He's our Savior, right? We need Him. We got to lean on Him. Grace makes us like Jesus. So I could, I could take you to dozens of passages that explain what a Christian's life should look like following after Jesus. You can read the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6, 7. You can read John 13, 14, 15 when He's sitting in the upper room teaching the disciples. You can read all of the New Testament. But I think the best, the quickest summary I can give you is found just a few pages over in Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. So these are verses that you probably memorized in Sunday school. You've probably memorized them through some Bible study. If you've never memorized them before, maybe, maybe you should add this to your list. But Galatians 5, 22 through 24 are, is a quick summary of a grace-filled, grace-empowered life. So what does it look like to be filled with the power of God? What does it look like to have the grace of God running through you as the sin of your flesh used to run and, and, and ro rule your life? What does it look like for grace to reign in your life? Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh in its passions and desires. And now we are filled with His Spirit. We're filled with His grace. And now we can walk in His grace. So what does grace want to produce in your life? And, and, and Paul uses this tree producing fruit analogy. Grace wants to produce the fruits of the Spirit. And they're listed as so. Now, I, I think this might be a little mean, but I, I got to do this. I think the best way to understand what the fruit of the Spirit are is to be reminded of what the fruit of the Spirit aren't. Does that, you think that will help? Because sometimes to know what a word means, when you know what the opposite of that word is, it makes the meaning of the word have more impact. So if the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control then that tells us that there are some things that definitely aren't products of a grace-filled life. That if our life are full of these things, then hey, we got, a, we, got a red, we got an alarm going on. So, hatefulness, anger, bitterness, impatience, rudeness, greed, selfishness, unfaithfulness, arrogance, impulsiveness. Those are the opposite of what the fruits of the Spirit are. You see, when, when we, we grow up in church and we hear the fruits of the Spirit and we kind of hear these words, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, oh, who has those things? And we just hear them and we kind of get numb to them. When we see what the opposites are, we kind of think, well, man, I definitely don't have those. Right? I mean, and, and this is hopefully a way to kind of get our eyes to be opened. If any of these things have a hold on your soul, then that tells you that grace has not taken its full effect. And again, if you live for today and do what feels right for today, what motivation is there to get these rotten attributes out of your life? But if you're going to give an account to God for these attributes, then it motivates you to, to get them out. But if judgment day is on the horizon and an eternity full of reward is only promised on the other side of an earthly life full of grace, 
then suddenly we have an imperative to pursue this right lifestyle. If we ask ourselves, what does my life look like if I put loving God and others first, if I put doing for others and being kind to others first, if I put giving and serving Him first? Do you see what I'm saying? A grace-filled life may feel like a weak, inferior alternative when compared to what your flesh would rather spend its time on. And here's where this passage sets up, passage sets up a brilliant picture for us to consider. Paul says there are some elements that seem like they're going to last forever. Some that would obviously be a stronger foundation. Meanwhile, there are others that are clearly weaker in every category. You don't need a higher power to make it known to you that gold and silver are superior to wood and hay and straw. But if these elements represent earthly works, heaven's fire is going to reveal their quality. And the fire is suddenly necessary. As in heaven's fire will reveal the quality of our earthly works. If the fire does not burn it up, then the quality is like gold and silver. If the fire consumes it, then the quality is like wood, hay, or straw. Here's the message. The quality of our lives, the success of our life, will not be determined by the metrics and markers of this world, but by what will happen on judgment day. So it's almost like he's saying, you may think that success and accomplishment in a well-lived life looks like this, but eternally speaking, all that slipped on his head. Because what this world rewards is not what heaven will reward, and vice versa. So my point is this, Paul's point is this, when you make decisions for how you're going to live your life, what you're going to do with your life, the words you use, the choices you make, unless we consider judgment day, we may not make the right decision. We are going to choose whatever betters our immediate position, adds treasure and pleasure to our current lives. That's how our flesh works. If we're using words, choosing actions that feel right and serve today, who's going to put anyone first other than themselves? But when all of a sudden on the horizon is an eternity, if all of a sudden we realize we have an earthly accountability with eternal implications, it may feel like things are being turned upside down, but in all reality, heaven really puts things right side up here on earth. One of the most forgotten statements that Jesus ever made that flies in the face of how this world operates and what our flesh wants, but Jesus said this in light of eternity. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. You say, Justin, if I choose love, if I choose to rejoice when I'd rather be mad and bitter, if I forgive, if I'm generous, if I have self-control when everyone else is doing whatever they want with, every, with who they want, if I choose these things, I'm going to lose in this life. If I give more than I take, if I love more, then I'm served. If, if I do these things, then I'm going to be behind other people. I'm going to let people take advantage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose something. I might even end up in last place. And Jesus said, well, exactly. And maybe that's where you want to be. It depends on what race you're trying to win, doesn't it? It depends on what reward you're trying to get. Jesus says choosing to follow may cost you in some categories, many categories, but in the, the eternal reward will make it all worthwhile. One day our lives will be tested, tried by fire. Our lives will prove to have built on a foundation of some kind. Will they be full of grace 
and will we be rewarded? That's the question. There's a couple other passages in Corinthians, later on in Corinthians, I want us to look at as we, before we get out of here, flip over to chapter nine and listen to how the apostle Paul continues to kind of fan the flame of living for these eternal rewards. At the very end of chapter nine in verses 24 through 27, listen to how Paul summarizes his own attitude and his own motivation and how he thinks this should be ours too. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. As in, if you run a race in this life, you might win a trophy or some money, but it's not going to last forever. But we do so for an imperishable crown, for eternal rewards. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, and he's comparing it to athletics. I bring my body under discipline. I discipline my body and bring it under subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified or be a castaway. Paul compares Christianity to athletics, bringing the mind, bringing to mind the training and discipline that is required to remain in shape and focus. Day after day, we have to remind ourselves that we are preparing for something beyond greater than this life. As great as this life can be, as sweet and rewarding as many of its moments and seasons are, there is something much more on the horizon. Paul writes about that something more over in chapter 15 as he looks forward to the day of judgment, as he looks forward to the return of Christ. He says to the people of Corinth, there's more to this life thanks to Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, what we need to hear, when we need to hear this the most, or on those days that we're just feeling off, on those days that we're questioning the point. Heaven's promise, eternity reward, they're unwavering if we keep them at the center of our hearts. The lives they are, that we are living, the choices that we make, the way we love and give and serve, those things matter, even when they aren't always appreciated or recognized. Paul had that discouraged person in mind when he wrote about the promise of Christ's return in our own transition from this life to the next. A verse, a passage I'm sure you're all familiar with, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. Listen to how Paul points us toward this day to come. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has, been put, has put on incorruption, when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. All death, where is your sting? All hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here's the thing. The best moments of this life, and I've had some great moments, and you have too, but you know what? The best moments of this life quickly become memories, don't they? 
You can try to relive them, and maybe you can, but those reliving moments become memories too, don't they? The greatest prizes in this life are almost guaranteed to fade away, aren't they? But there is a reward. There is a reward and there is a promise on the horizon that will be our forever reality that will never see corruption. That's the promise for Christians. That's the promise you and I have. And that's why Judgment Day is not something to fear or be worried about, but a day to look forward to in a day that makes every day before that matter so much more. And it makes everything we do take on such a greater importance, doesn't it? If we are saved, we have a victory. The verse 57 says, we have victory in Christ. We've been given His amazing grace. Rest assured, our labor is not in vain. You know, Jesus preached a sermon, one of, the, one of the sermons that he preached more than any other, he repeated it in all the Gospels. It, it often feels like it's putting pressure on us, but if you read between the lines, he's actually putting pressure on God at the same time. Let me remind you of it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny themselves and take up his cross and follow me. So if you follow me, it might cost you. You might make some decisions that you don't feel like are the right thing for you, or you don't feel like they, they don't feel as good, or they don't immediately gratify you like the decisions of your flesh could have. If you follow me, it's going to cost you. You're going to deny yourself. It's going to feel like you're letting go of power in this world. You're going to feel like you might be saying goodbye to some things that you wish you could cling to because you felt like those things were important to advance you. But he says, whoever would save their life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, We'll find it. He says, hey, you can, you can cling to this life all you want. You can try as you might save this life. You will lose it in the end. Time runs out on everybody. Everybody runs out of time. So if you know you're going to run out of time and you know this life is going to end someday eventually, why not live your days dedicating and honoring your, the Lord with your life? If you're going to give your life up for something, why not give it all to Jesus? Why not allow his grace to make a difference in you and change you and transform you and get you ready for eternity? And then he puts the pressure on us and it might make us feel uncomfortable because we've heard this so much. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So he says, hey, if you gain the world and lose your soul, what is that for you? And of course, that, that makes us think, wow, that's a big, that's an important question. But notice, Jesus is promising us all along, if you choose me, if you follow me, if you allow the grace of God to change you and transform you, it's going to pay off in the end. I promise you. And then he makes this, he makes this statement. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So this parable is often, or this passage is often about putting pressure on us, but really it puts the pressure on God. Because Jesus says, I promise you, if you live for me, I promise you will be rewarded. Whatever you give up for me, whatever you dedicate for me, I'm putting my own name on the line. You will, you will, you will be rewarded. So again, don't take my word for it. Take Jesus. If you've taken up his cross, if you followed him, denied your flesh, received his grace, if you live with eternity on your mind, you will be rewarded. You can count on it. And that's why Paul says in 58, your labor 
is not in vain. So could you just imagine with me for a minute? Imagine a version of earth where everyone lives in preparation for eternity. Imagine a version of earth where everyone lives and loves and serves like Christ did. And I know what you think. I know what our response to that is. Justin, that sounds like a fairy tale. That sounds like an imaginary world. It may seem imaginary, but it should be the ordinary. Haven't we learned that? If we allow God's grace to make us extraordinary people, grace-empowered, transformed people, eternally prepared people, then this imaginary world actually becomes the ordinary world because extraordinary people are allowing the grace of God to live and love and serve through them. So you want to be prepared for eternity? You want to look forward to eternity? If you're saved, you have nothing to fear. If you're saved and you've been given the grace of God, then you know what it takes to find the rewards that will last forever. But just know, if your life is all about this life and building up this earthly kingdom, you may be putting those rewards at risk. But you know, we know, we have saw in front of us today the pathway to a life of eternal reward. And it's found by following the footsteps of Jesus. You have everything you need from him today. And if you don't feel like you have it, all you gotta do is ask and he will give you what you're missing. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this reminder that judgment day doesn't have to be a day we fear or a day that we worry about. If we're saved, if we put faith in Christ, if we believe he died for our sins like we've saw laid out in front of us today, and God, if there's anybody in the house today that they've never done that, they've never put their faith in Christ, they, they see that he loves them and died for them and give, gave his own life, that they might have a life of purpose in eternity. God, I pray you'd remind them of that today and you would give them an invitation to put their faith in Christ. Lord, for those of us that have and for everybody that's hearing today, as we put our faith in Jesus, we believe that uh, there is a life, uh, there is reward waiting for us when we dedicate our lives to him. Father, I pray you might would move through this room and if anybody would confess that they've not allowed your grace to transform them and they haven't been living a life where your grace is empowering them, but they want that today, Lord, you've already given them the, your grace, but it's all about them waking up to it. And it's all about them leaning on Jesus and allowing him to live through them. Lord, as we all keep in mind that judgment day is coming, that eternity is coming, and we will all be judged, we pray that the rewards that have been promised in this book today will be awaiting all of us. And may you give us the strength and the power we need to live a life like Jesus, to see this imaginary world become our ordinary world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.